Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here on West Coast Live is the author of a book called A History of the Breast, a history, of course, that is still in the making and will continue on, we hope, for a long time. Uh, the author, Marilyn Yalom, is a senior scholar for the Institute of Women and Gender at Stanford University. And this book has created quite a stir throughout the country. She's also the author of Blood Sisters and Maternity Mortality in the Literature of Madness. And her book about the French uh, Revolution, she's very pleased to say, was also the subject, was also a line in a double acrostic in the New York Times. Will you please welcome Marilyn Yalom to West Coast Live. Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. How, how has your perspective of, of breasts changed as a result of doing this history? Well, for one thing, I can talk about them more comfortably <laughs> in public. <laughs> and I realize that they have many, many meanings, uh, not just as sex objects, but as nurturing objects, and of course, unfortunately, uh, as carriers of disease. And they're connected with all kinds of controversies, like breast implants and the right to breastfeed in public, which is not a right in California, as it is in 12 other states. Women can still get ca hassled by police officers and managers of stores if they decide that they want to, if they have to breastfeed their babies. Uh, so there are a lot of aspects of the breast that I wasn't aware of when I started this book. And, and, and you said that it allows you to talk about it more comfortably. Had you been uncomfortable about talking about the subject of breasts before, even though you speak on gender subjects all the time? Well, I don't think it was your everyday subject of conversation. And uh, after I finished my book on the French Revolution, and I started on this one, uh, and people would say, well, what are you working on now? And I'd say, well, I'm doing a history of the breast. And I'd get, uh, the what? <laughs> or uh, something like, um, how can there be a history of a part of the body? And a lot of people didn't want to use the word breast. It was very interesting to see how uncomfortable people were. Or eyes would go up, and uh, s women looked the other way sometimes. And you know, men looked at my breasts to see whether they were large or small. Or <laughs> So it, uh, even just the, the, the subject you were researching became provocative. The subject? I mean, as you were doing the research. Oh, absolutely. And people started sending me articles from newspapers and magazines and even books. Uh, it was a subject that I can honestly say I wrote in collaboration with probably 100 or 200 other people. Um, I had no trouble getting my colleagues at Stanford to read chapters from the manuscript. <laughs> Members of my family all contributed in some way or another to the book. My son, Reed, who's a photographer here in San Francisco, uh, did five of the photographs that are in the book. Uh, I, I even have my grandson uh, in the book in the process of being nursed. Um, it has obsessed me for four years, and it's been very easy to communicate <coughs> excuse me, that obsession to everybody else around me. I mean, it truly is a universal topic. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean yes, it's a body part. Um, it, it's also given us, uh, through scientific literature, the name of our particular category of species uh, 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 or genera, uh, mammals. Absolutely. 
Uh, that was in the 18th century when there was a similar controversy about the breast. And the controversy at that time had to do with whether women should be nursing their own babies or sending them out to wet nurses. And in France and England and throughout Europe, um, a large percentage of women were sending their babies to wet nurses in the country where they would remain for 18 months or two years. And if they survived, which they often did not, uh, then they'd come home to their families. Well, there was a controversy about this that began in the, the middle of the 18th century. Um, and Linnaeus, the naturalist, was a part of that. He was very much in favor of maternal nursing. And ultimately, he was the one who uh, renamed us. We are no longer quadrupeds, but we are mammals. And that comes from the mammae, which, of course, are the breasts. And, and uh, anatomically speaking, what, what is, is a breast is an is a enlarged sweat gland. Exactly. Um, I'm not too strong on the anatomy of the breast, but um, uh, it is a, a functioning part of the body that produces milk, and we all know that, but that's what we seem to tend to forget when we look at a breast. Now you've actually, I guess, this raises a question, you're, you're actually focusing on the female breast, not the male breast here. That is true. And that is because the male breast simply hasn't been significant in the same way that the female breast has been throughout history. Um, I, can't, I don't have much to say about the male breast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, then I won't ask you much about it. I, I do know, for instance, that when my, uh, uh, my son was, was, was much younger than he is now, he would seek me out when he was lying on my chest and he'd be frustrated. I'd say, there's nothing there. I'm sorry. You got the wrong person. <laughs> well, the one place I do write about this is in a, something of a takeoff on Freud, where I uh, take his idea of penis envy and turn it around and turn it into breast envy for men. And it's been interesting how many people have responded to that not terribly original idea. Um, some have been outraged by it. Uh, others have found it funny and credible. Uh, what I did, in fact, started with a very serious space. I read every single thing that Freud had ever written about the breast, and, uh, and a good bit of what he had written about women's sexuality. And I took many of the same terms, the same language, and I just turned it around uh, and tried to imagine what, what it's like for a boy um, to look at breasts and uh, assume that maybe he'll grow some too when he's an adolescent. And then when he doesn't, he gets enraged. Uh, where are mine? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Why don't I have them? <laughs> have, have you found that that's, uh, people have expressed that they've had exactly those frustrations as an adolescent? Well, that would be, of course, on an unconscious level, and by now it would be very, very repressed. But uh, there has to be some very complicated un explanation for the obsession that adult males have with women's breasts, which... Um, <laughs> which Freud really doesn't explain to the extent that um, there is a difference between women and men on this score. I mean, if we were following his thesis, women would also have the same kind of obsession about breasts when they grow up, um, and they don't, at least not in our society. Uh, instead of saying, I want the breast, they can say, I have breasts, and that's a different experience. You start out your history with, uh, with actually the, the, how breasts were, were focused on in, in uh, 
know, a thousand, two thousand years ago. I mean, they were, they were, uh, were they as eroticized as they are today? Or were they uh, used as, uh, you know, the uh, recognition of the, of the nurturant quality of them, that they are a source of life? I think that the erotic quality has always been there, but it's certainly been played down in antiquity and um, through the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages in any event, and the nurturant quality of the breast was always at the forefront, and, pr and even what I, what I call in my first chapter the sacred quality of the breast, because you see statues of goddesses that have very prominent breasts, that are holding up their breasts as a kind of divine offering. Uh, breasts are supposed to have um, magical powers in these early, very early images, some of them prehistoric. Uh, and of course, if you think of the nursing Madonna invented in 14th century Italy, and obviously there, uh, the breast has spiritual nurturing as well as physical nurturing. And those images of the nursing Madonna, um, the very earliest of them, the breast looks like a little stick-on breast. It's um, uh, like a little piece of fruit that's just plopped down on the chest. And it's not <coughs> supposed to be realistic. It's supposed to be there as a symbol of the spiritual nourishment of the Christian soul. So that you can very clearly speak about a uh, a sacred breast at that time. And it's not until the 15th century or the 16th century with the Renaissance coming on and focusing on secular life rather than on the life beyond uh, that we begin to see images of the breast that are increasingly realistic and increasingly erotic. It's as if the erotization of the breast takes over at that point. How much of this was tied into uh, sort of the realism of the imagery uh, that went on? A great deal. Um, it's hard to f factor out everything that goes into a change, a real sea change in ideas and representation. Uh, the greater realism certainly is one aspect of it, so that the, the nursing Madonna becomes a more and more of a realistic mother. Um, you know, the breast, which is initially, as I say, this little symbolic breast, and, and a small breast initially, because it might surprise 20th century men to know that it was the small breast that was the ideal breast in the Middle Ages and the early Renaissance. Small, perky, um, uh, not the large globular breast, but that begins... Well, you know, you also, though, I mean, I, I have to speak up in defense of 20th century men here as well, I mean... <laughs> or at least illuminated it, because there have been... I mean, you, you put together a theory that, that uh, the fashion of what is found attractive in, in women changes about every 40 years, and at least a couple of times in this century, uh, Twiggy and Penelope Tree being one example in, in recent decades, and in the 20th century, the flappers, where small breasts, thin women was sort of the preferred model. And of course, there was the Hollywood uh, model, where what was it, the bust was considered ideal if it was an inch more round than the hip dimension. Right. right. I mean, these, these things fluctuate. And so you, you explore in an interesting way whether this is a result of male demand or female response to satisfy men or, you know, how, how do you see the fluctuating natures of what's considered ideal? 
Who determines what's ideal? Well, uh, any number of people from fashion designers to Hollywood moguls. Um, I was very amused by something Steinbeck wrote in the post-World War II period when he was observing all of the calendars and movie magazines, and he said a, a creature from an alien planet would think that the seat of procreation lay in the mammaries because he was looking at these huge protuberances on the, the chests of all of these women in the post-World War II era. But you're right, in our own century, we have seen fluctuation. And when the, the breast becomes flattened out, it's usually an anomaly, as in the 20s and as in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, in the 20s, we had women um, binding their breasts and trying to look as boyish as possible. Uh, in the late 60s, of course, we had the beginnings of the women's liberation movement, the so-called bra burnings at the Miss America pageant. I say so-called because women at that pageant who demonstrated in Atlantic City didn't really burn their bras. They uh, threw them into trash cans. But some um, uh, up-and-coming reporter co coined the term bra burning to link that with other incendiary acts like burning one's draft cards or the American flag. Um, and so we had these two periods in the 20th century where it was fashionable to have no breasts, no visible breasts in any event, and uh, to look as boyish as possible. But those are anomalies. Um, for the most part, we, if you look at this century, and I'm only looking at this century because it's very hard to chart these cycles, there have been times when the breasts are flattened out, but they're rare in history. There's a great deal of, of awareness now, and it's become a major political issue as well for uh, treatment of breast cancer, how much attention women get within the medical community. How uh, historically have you seen breasts treated in terms of cancer, in terms of tumors, and, and so forth? Well, we have records going back to the Greeks and Romans about um, a surgery of tumors. And the same kind of surgery and treatment uh, went on for about 2,000 years. In fact, some of the treatments um, had to do with the humoral theory of illness. That is that if your humors were out of balance, you would get sick. So uh, a lot of the treatment of breast cancer had to do with diet and emetics and eating everything from bat dung to God knows what, you know. <laughs> The uh, uh, first one sounds like God knows what, I don't know. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, um, but the surgical treatment of the breast became more effective in the late 19th century uh, when we began to understand that infections are caused by germs and the, we began to use uh, antiseptics and anesthesia. So it's only been for the past 100 years that the surgical treatment of breast cancer has been reasonably effective as one form of treatment. This also has raised issues of how women view themselves as, as well. If um, a woman has gone through a mastectomy, um, and I mean, how have you seen that sort of uh, 
self-image issue change? Well, that's changed really dramatically, uh, and particularly in the last few years. Um, initially, the idea that you would lose a breast for some women was like losing their lives. Uh, because of the breast cancer activism of the last five or ten years, uh, I think we're beginning to demystify that process, at least I hope we are, and um, women are more open about saying, well, I've, I have breast cancer, I'm, I'm having this kind of treatment, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about whether I want to have breast reconstruction surgery, and uh, quite a few women are not having their breasts reconstructed. I have in my book two images of women who have had mastectomies, one of which is the most hopeful image, I think, in, in the entire book. It's uh, called The Warrior. It was done in 1980 of Dina Metzger, a writer in the Santa Cruz area. And she has her arms outstretched to the sun, and she has a tattoo across the area where the one breast had been removed. It's a very heartening, very heartening image. The, uh there was, a, there was a story recently um, about uh, some archaeological discoveries that perhaps indicate the, the Amazons were in fact a, a race, not, of, not in fact of myth, but of, of reality. Uh, and you explore at some length what uh, the power of the breast means uh, and why an Amazon may have covered one up or taken one off. Well, the legend, which is pre-Homeric, so it goes back, you know, more than 3,000 years is that Amazons removed their right breast in order to be able to draw the bow more effectively. And these were warrior women from the Caucasus region, um, according to the legend. And according to the legend, they slept with men once a year in order to produce offspring. And then they got rid of the male offspring, either uh, just sending them off or crippling them. And they raised the, the female offspring. Well, you can see what a terrifying image this is for men in particular. You've got the one good breast, the nurturing breast, and you've got the one bad breast, which has been removed uh, in a very aggressive effort, uh, which is harmful to men. So it's not surprising that in fifth century a Athens, um, if you had been a citizen of that city at that time, uh, you would have been surrounded by images of Amazon women being defeated by Greek men and very often <laughs> aiming their blows at the women's breast so as uh, to take revenge on the woman who doesn't want to be an, a female in the proper sense of the term. The breasts of uh then represented a, a battleground, I mean, of all kinds, I mean, and, and certainly in this century, as well as in past centuries, as you point out, there's often been a connection between commerce and the breast, mm -hmm. that people will pay to see it, pay to, uh, uh, it'll pay, it'll, it'll be something that people will pay thousands of millions of dollars to, uh, to support, to enhance, uh, to reduce, to enlarge, um, to see, uh, to touch. <laughs> yes, um, I did a, chapter on the commercialized breast, uh, pointing out that, there, that women have been buyers and sellers in the breast market. When they've been sellers, they've uh, sold their milk or they've sold the image of their breasts. Um, when they've been buyers, they've been buying 
uh, all sorts of breast-related products. Corsets, which were the major way of supporting breasts for 600 years. Uh, bras, of course, and creams and, and uh, implants. Uh, so it goes both ways. There's a, uh, a section in here where you talk about San Francisco's role in this particular uh, event in the permissive 60s, as you put it. Mark this date, June 19th, 1964, Topless Dancing was born. Carol Dota uh, was a go-go dancer at the Condor Nightclub on Broadway, just around the corner from where the hot club plays nowadays, I think. <laughs> and uh, she was on one of these new uh, topless swimsuits, right? right. <laughs> and uh, came down in a, a piano lowered from the ceiling. The next night there were lines around Broadway. There was a topless shoe sign stand uh, that was later opened. Uh, and by 1966, the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce noted that nearly a third of the city's 101 nightclubs were topless. Now, there is something to be remarked upon, I suppose, in, in your history of the breast. Did you ever go into the Condor Club? No, although we, are, we have a place in the city very near there, and there is a plaque on the Condor today which says that this was the beginning of the topless movement. Uh, one of the things that I did do I in researching this book was to read everything that women had written about that experience. And if I may, I'll, uh, I'll read a couple of things here. Uh, this is from a woman just known as Susan. At first she thought, quote, it seemed so very weird. I mean, there were people coming into a place to have a few drinks, but mainly to watch my breasts being exposed. This was a form of entertainment? to watch them, <laughs> then her attitude changed. Quote, once the shyness left, I felt fine about it. It was like, you guys want to sit here and pay money to see them? Great, because I need the money. <laughs> Did you ever find cases of, of women who went to watch uh, nude women dancing? No, I didn't. I think there are um, a few lacuna in my book, and that may be one of them. <laughs> I don't know, it's a very comprehensive book and certainly um, fascinating to read as uh, uh, somebody who's had experience, of course, around breasts as myself as a human being growing up. Uh, a History of the Breast uh, by Marilyn Yalom, published by Knopf. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thank you, Sedge. <laughs> this is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.